You're listening to the Player Layer Podcast, where we talk about board games and game design. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I have with me a great game designer and teacher of game design, Joe Slack, uh, whose game is on Kickstarter right now. It's a solo puzzle-solving game called Relics of Raja Vihara, and it's a game I really enjoyed. I had the chance to play it uh, on Tabletop Simulator, which you can do as well if you have uh, the platform. Uh, But ultimately, we had some very interesting conversations about his design process, uh, making puzzle games, and teaching design to other people. It was a great conversation to have, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Slack, a game designer, game design teacher. I am happy to have you on, Joe, for a variety of reasons. But I think, first of all, I want to talk about your Kickstarter game, Relics of Raja Vihara, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, could you give me a game pitch? Uh, what's the game about? Sure. Uh, so it's a solo, puzzly adventure game. So it's kind of reminiscent of a lot of the old um, Nintendo NES style puzzle games like. Legend of Zelda, uh, Adventure, uh, Adventures of Lolo, and um, Fire and Ice, which is one of my personal favorites, a little lesser known game, uh, where you're you're doing different things, you're trying to kind of solve different puzzles, but it's been turned into a tactile kind of experience. So in a lot of the levels, you are pushing around crates to try to, you know, uh, get, a, get a path to get up to the gem, to beat that and move on to the next level. And it's a series of 50 levels that are spread out over five floors. So it, it's a little legacy style in that way too. So you open up the first box and you get some crates and you have a level and you have to beat it and you move on through at the level. We've also got a nemesis that's already descended into uh, into the palace before you. So uh, you're kind of chasing him down throughout. Once you get to that 10th level and you know, you're going after him, then he escapes and then you open a new box and there's a new type of lock and the challenges get harder and harder over time. And then with the, with the new floor, another box opens. So you do that five times so you're getting all these different varieties of different things that keep adding to the level and making it more challenging. But at the same time, I didn't want somebody to play the campaign and be like, okay, I'm done. This is going to sit on the shelf and I might break it out another year when I've kind of forgotten the puzzles. So I also included a replayable solo adventure that you play afterwards where you play some of those old levels, but they have completely different challenges. And from what, what the beta testers are saying, they are completely different way to have to solve them. You can't even like think of them in the same way, which is kind of cool. And are the levels themselves solvable in multiple ways? Because I found that in my plays uh, on Tabletop Simulator, a lot of times what I was trying to do, I could see that you planned for that not to be a viable solution. Absolutely. So pretty much every level in the game, you can solve it multiple ways. Uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting watching people play too, because you'll see one person solve it one way and then another person plays it another way and solves it in, in a few less steps. They found another solution. And maybe it's something that I hadn't even thought about, which was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you, you can definitely get yourself in a position where, you know, the blocks are situated in such a way where you just get stuck um, and you can't proceed any further. And that's where you have to reset. So very much like if you're playing a video game, okay, let's start the level again. So you just, you know, move those, those couple blocks back into position. Okay, let's give it another try. And then you think, okay, I got to make sure not to get that block stuck against that wall because then I can't do anything with it, that kind of thing. So it really makes you think and gives you another chance to, uh, to, to tackle it. But the really cool thing is 
that that experience when somebody's played it multiple times and then they finally get that solution and they go, oh, finally I beat it. It's just that that really, really good feeling when they finally beat that level and they can advance. It really is a feeling of completion and achievement. Yeah, and another thing I really like about the game is how you uh, made a tutorial for it by introducing new types of mechanics and new types of cubes on every floor. So you're kind of uh, walking the player through uh, easier puzzles and then showing showing them how the game kind of works and then giving them those hard-to-solve uh, difficult puzzles. How did you make that tutorial? Well, it, it was very, very intentional. Um, I wanted... As I was developing the game and, you know, I started it with the crates just to get the idea and see if the, the gameplay worked. And then I started adding other elements to it. And I thought it just makes more sense uh, not to throw somebody in with absolutely everything. It would just be a little too overwhelming. So I kind of went back to those style of video games where the first couple levels, you're just kind of learning. Okay, this is how you push a block. This is this is what happens when you push a stack out and everything else moves forward or, or the bottom one goes forward and everything else drops in. Here's how you kind of solve a puzzle. So I want it to be very much um, exploratory. So you start off with just the basics and then the levels get a little harder and then you're introduced to one new thing. So it's it's a gradual development. So it was very, very intentional in that way. And when I developed all the levels, uh, once I had a clear set of you know five, uh, 10 really good solid levels for each floor, I tried to arrange them in such a way that the difficulty level scales up. So the very first level one one is is very basic. It just gives you a feel for what you can do, and you can look at it and say, "Oh, I could also do it this way. I could also solve it this way." And then and then the next level is just a little harder. So I wanted to get that progression, so you felt like you were accomplishing something and having enough of a challenge without it being too too easy right off the bat. Like the first few levels are very straightforward, but they give you the feel for it. And then you start to think, you get almost overconfident. You're thinking, oh, this is easy. This game's not gonna be so bad. Oh, was it really worth it? And then you start playing, you're like, oh, okay, now now it's getting tricky. Oh, and now there's a new block. Oh, geez, how do I work around this? So it's, it's that constant progression, just like you see in a lot of the video games where the levels just get harder and harder and new things are added in. So it's very, very intentional. And I'm, I'm glad that it's kind of come across with that feeling, that kind of tutorial and learning feeling. Are video games the place you usually look for ideas from? Or where, where do you get your inspiration for games? Uh, so I've had games come out of an idea from something someone has said. Um, just, you know, somebody says a phrase. Uh, somebody says like, oh, awesome sauce. And I'm like, that could be a game. And I made a game out of it. Or I have, I've seen a TV show, for example. And uh, one game came out of that. It was uh, a line said, Man, you're you're the you're the king of empty promises, and I kind of tweaked that in my head, and, and it somehow changed the range to king of indecision, and that became a game where I just woke up one morning, I was like, oh, okay, I understand how that game's going to work, and I started kind of start to put it out. So, my ideas can come anywhere from conversations to a video game to a movie. I made one that was based on um, the bowler hat scene from the Thomas Crown Affair, where there's all these people walking around with bowler hats and suitcase briefcases, and that's a heist game that I that I came up with. Um, to even board games. I might be playing another board game and I'll be like, I like that one element of this really, I really like this. I'd like to explore this more. And, you know, this one component of this game, I want to make a whole game kind of based on that and maybe come up with a new theme, make it a whole new innovative thing, but really explore one, one aspect of that. So uh, they really can come from anywhere. And then how do you further those ideas? Because like with Relics, the core of the game is so simple and it's so intuitive and the the rule book is only a page or two. 
but then you've developed that idea into something a lot bigger. Well, usually I have a, a concept of what I think it's going to be. Of course, what, is it, what it is in your mind versus what it is when you actually put it down can often be quite different. So my first thing is just usually uh, when I have an idea and I have some time, I want to get that idea out of my head and make something out of it. It doesn't have to be the full version of it. I like to always call it the, the minimum viable prototype where I, I, you know, I just have like a small sample just to see if the concept works. And that right away will tell me, okay, this idea was really cool. Okay, this isn't going to work at all. Um, and then I just kind of grow and branch out from there. But I very much do like games where the rules aren't super complex, like when I'm playing the game, when I'm when I'm the player. And I kind of design that way too. I, I want to make a game where the rules only, you know, on a couple sheets of paper, you can learn it easily, you can teach it very easily. You're not going to have to keep consulting the rule book. Oh, what does this rule mean? Oh, what happens in the situation? I want it to be very straightforward, but I, I don't want the gameplay to be simplistic. So I want it, you know, maybe the, the rules are very simple in terms of, okay, you can do one or two things on your turn. Here are the few things you can do. But it's in those things that you do where the strategy comes in, where the complexity comes in, where those interesting choices come in. So it, it's that balance of finding something that's, that's easy to learn and easy to teach, but it has a nice depth to the game where, where it's not going to play the same every time. You're not going to take the same strategy. Next time you're going to say, oh, I tried this and it didn't quite work out. I'm going to try it again next time and make a couple different choices, or I want to try this other strategy or try this other couple strategies. I mean, that's really what you want after you play test a game is for people to be talking about the game and saying, oh, I want to try it again because like I made a mistake or I, I, I want to try this other thing because there's so much variety in it. Like those, those are the really feel good moments as a designer that you know you've got something that's going in the right direction. Yeah, when I mean, you can mix that in with uh, the accessibility that a simple rule set provides, it's a really, really good combination because you have players wanting to play more and knowing exactly what they can and can't do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's coming up with that simple, elegant rule set. Very easy to comprehend, very easy to teach. You know, you can you can teach a, a family member, you can teach your mom to play, that kind of thing. Uh, like a game for Azul, like, like Azul, for, for example. Um, that's a game that I'll break out in front of anybody, whether it's, you know, my, my family, other friends, and everybody loves that game. And like everybody that plays it wants to play it again. They, they love it. They go and buy it or they ask me to bring it again because the rules are so simple. You know, you've got these these tiles sitting out here on, on these um, little almost coasters. And you just all you have to do is take all of one color from a particular coaster. And, but then and everything else goes in the center. Very simple rules. And then you place it on your board. Very simple. But it's where you place those and looking at what everybody else is doing and what they're collecting. And that's where the strategy comes in. And the next game is going to be different because you're going to have a different layout. You might try a different strategy. You might go more for like center rows. You might go more for five of one type. You might go more for columns. You might just go for blocks that are going to score more. There's, there's so many ways you can do it and you can play it over and over again. And then you can flip the board over and play it a different variation where you get to decide where those uh, tiles are going and where the rest of them are going to go. So it gives a little more variability. And that that's kind of more for almost like, I wouldn't say necessarily expert level, but kind of next level, where if you are, get a little bit bored or it's, it's becoming a little bit too much of the same thing, you can try something out different. And then you can always go back to that, or, or like you know, the original when you're teaching new people as well. And could you tell me what got you into solo games in the first place? And what made you decide that this game was a solo game? Because it works perfectly well co-op, like uh, Richard Ham said in his review. 
Sure. Yeah. I, I've definitely gotten more into solo games in the last couple of years. Um, my first one was uh, Friday. I picked that oh, up at uh, Origins. I heard, I, I, I know, I'd heard uh, good things about it. And I saw it at Origins and uh, Rio Grande had a, a booth there. And actually had some like games that were like ding and dents kind of for a couple bucks off. And I saw it there and it just had a little dent in the box. And it was like, oh, like eight bucks or something. And I'm like, I, I can take a chance on this game for eight bucks. I've heard good things. And I tried it and I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like I, I was never really into like deck builders and that because I very feel very much feel like you're playing your own solo game with them. There's not much interaction, but it, like a deck building kind of solo game. It was like that was OK because I don't need interaction. There is nobody else. And, and it, it was really interesting. That kind of opened up my eyes to other games beyond, you know, like solitaire playing with cards or something like that or little puzzles. And then I started exploring other games. I got Unbroken. And since then, I've played like Cristallo and Maquis and Orchard. And Palm Island, which I absolutely love. It's a game you play in the palm of your hand. You don't even need a table. Like, you can take that with you if you're waiting in line for a movie or a restaurant or whatnot, especially if you're by yourself, if you're on the bus. You can play that all in the palm of your hand. You don't even need a table. You don't even need, you know, an air, air, like if you're on an airplane, you don't even need a tray or anything. You play at the airport, you can play wherever. So it's very versatile. And there's so many of these games that are great because uh, sometimes you just want to play a game by yourself. Maybe, you know, your partner or your family isn't into games as much as you. Um, during this time right now, maybe you can't get together with your gaming groups, um, but you still have that itch to, to, to play. And maybe your appetite for games is a little bit larger than other people. And it, and it gives you that ex same experience. Um, it doesn't have that same person-to-person -person experience, which a lot of people are looking for in a game. But sometimes you just want to sit down and play a game and not have a screen in front of you. You know, maybe if, especially if it's like late at night and you don't want that, you know, right before you go to bed or something like that. You just need to take a little break and unwind. And Solo games are great for that. They're, many of them are very contemplative and they allow you to take your time. You're not rushed. You don't have, like, there's no other players kind of rushing you to like make a decision. You can take as much time as you want. You can set it up. You can walk away from it. You can come back to it. Nobody's, you know, waiting on you. Um, it's just, it can be a really enjoyable experience. And uh, what I discovered was there's a huge community for this. There's a Facebook group with over 20,000 people, the solo board gamers, which is fantastic. And they talk all about different games and you learn about new games you never played before or co-op games you never played or variants of games. Like there's variants of Azul and Century Spice Road and Quacks of Quedlingburg that I own all those games, but I didn't know you could play them solo. So I've been, you know, trying them out and, and seeing how they work. Um, and then there's other, there's about five different Facebook groups that are all for solo gamers. That's the biggest one. Um, and this was well before COVID. Like it, it, it's, it was a growing community and you see in a lot of Kickstarters, they're including a solo mode or the game is designed for one to four players because they know that opens up the market more. There are some people out there who will not buy a game if it doesn't have a solo mode for that reason. It's a small group, but you know, you're losing out on that. Um, but even before COVID, it was growing. And now during COVID with more and more people being at home, it just lent itself even more so to that. Yeah, definitely. I, I hadn't played any solo games before COVID I, I, with the exception of maybe Pandemic. Which is listed as a two to four player game, but it's you know co op games are quite easy to, <laughs> to to play solo usually. But yeah, it's it's really awesome, and it's really awesome that you're doing a, a game listed as uh, solo only, and it's so cool that it's got this much attention. Now you're at I think eight hundred and something backers, and it's it's really awesome to see your Kickstarter uh, doing this well because I think it's an awesome idea. Could you tell me how you? got to the Kickstarter and how you decided on self-publishing versus publishing with a publisher, because I've known that you've uh, published other games with publishers before. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just to jump back to the, the kind of co-op as, aspect too, uh, you're saying pandemic, like uh, any co-op game like Pandemic, Forbidden Island, uh, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, all these games can be played solo as well. Uh, usually take on the role of two or maybe more characters. So you have a little more versatility in it. Um, and and Relic started a little bit that way too, because when I came up with the idea, I thought, you know, maybe it would be a good co-op experience. Maybe people would play this together, look at the puzzle, figure it out together as a group, like almost like exit or one of those escape rooms in a box, that type of thing. Maybe it could be done like that. And I brought it to Breakout Con, um, a local convention, and I put it in front of a few people and they started playing it. And I quickly realized that one, almost always one person kind of takes the lead and does everything. The other person might have an idea or whatever. And that can happen. The kind of quarterbacking idea can happen in any co-op game, but it really made me realize it did suit more um, a solo experience. Uh, but I've had reviewers and other people say, you know, they had it set up and they actually played it with their partner uh, or, you know, they got stuck in a level and they asked their partner to have a, to have a look at it and that kind of thing. So it can definitely um, uh, grow for, grow from there. Um, but I mean, it can be done as a solo experience. It, I mean, that's what it's intended for, but it can be done uh, co-op as well. And now that I've gone off on that tangent, I kind of forget the, the original question you asked. So maybe you can just jump back to that. Sorry about that. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good tangent to go on. Uh, the, qu the question was about how you decided to go through self-publishing the game. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for the reminder. Um, so it, I, I kind of went back to that story because Breakout Con was the first time I, I was playtesting it at all. And there was another publisher there. And he really liked the game. He, I, I, wound up, I wound up signing another game with him. And it's, it's uh, in the process of being published right now as well. Uh, but he really, really loved the concept. And, and after I developed a little further and whatnot, he said, you know, can I, can I take the prototype to play and, and kind of evaluate? And I said, sure. I'm glad to always have, you know, other feedback and you never know where it'll go. I guess I was in the back of my mind as I was developing this. I thought it did have the potential for me to self-publish because I know that there's a solo community out there. And, and I'd seen from the experience of other people like AJ Por Porfirio with um, Hostage Negotiator and Final Girl and, and other solo games, and especially Artem Safarov, who had Unbroken. He's a friend of mine and, and a local Toronto designer as well. I learned a lot from him and I talked to him about how he built up his following. And that kind of gave me the idea of whether or not I could do it. So he built it up through a little bit through Board Game Geek and through these solo Facebook groups that I had just started to kind of... Um, learn about and that kind of thing. He said, you know, he just got involved and this is kind of how he went about doing it. And I, I saw that there was an opportunity there as an individual creator to go in there, individual creator, solo game, you know, you can talk to other people in there, learn about what games they like, learn what they're looking for and help that in the development of your game. Share a little bit about my game, um, talk about other games I was playing, Palm Island and McKee and, and things I liked about those games and ask other questions and just be engaged in the community because I, I was really loving the solo experience. And, and it's, it's funny, it's a solo experience, but you're sharing this with so many other people, which is kind of weird and online, a, a tabletop solo experience that you're sharing with multiple people online. It's kind of a weird thing. Um, but ultimately, um, the publisher was looking at it and he was having a hard time deciding whether or not he could do it as a product. He loved the game. He loved the gameplay and, and he became a, one of the early backers of the, the campaign and everything, but he, he was having a hard time deciding whether or not he could do it, he, whether he could produce it at a cost that was um, reasonable um, because there were a lot of components. I have all these one inch solid wooden blocks that are going to be print screen. So, I mean, that's not cheap to produce. Um, and I had a lot more in it. I did further development work and I got it down from 52 blocks to 38. And that was part of me just putting on the developer hat when I realized I can do this on my own uh, to say, how can I bring down the cost to make this more reasonable and I can actually sell it and, and make it a really good product. 
Um, so it was kind of during his evaluation period, I realized, you know, he's a little hesitant on this. And the whole time I was kind of thinking, maybe I could do this on my own. Maybe, maybe I could do this better because I could be engaged in the community and build that following myself. I'd run one Kickstarter before, it was for a party game and it, it flopped, but it was an experience that I learned from. And I also learned from other uh, publishers that I worked with. I, I had two other publishers that kickstarted two of my games and I was just more helping out, uh, bringing people in, um, helping out a little bit with the page and giving feedback and that kind of thing. But I learned from them. So it was all a learning experience. And uh, I very much like both aspects. I like pitching to other publishers because I have so many other games. I don't think I could ever publish them all myself. And I, I would get bored if I was just working on one game at a time. So I like having other games I'm working on that I could hand off to other publishers and they can do the thing because they know about distribution. They know about getting the game out there. And they know about Kickstarter. But this particular one I thought could work really well. And I also kind of wanted to main creative maintain creative control on this one because I knew that it was so open for different expansions, uh, different variations on the game. So if, if it did really well, I could keep building on that success because you want to build on one brand rather than, you know, have all these different games out if the game does well enough to do that. I mean, it's, it's easier to sell something that people know and, and can build on that for sure. So I, I saw a lot of those opportunities and I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go for it. And, uh, and see how it goes and just build up that community and see if I can get it funded. And sort of what's the time frame here? Like how long did, ago did you decide on going for Kickstarter? Um, I would say it was back around December or November last year. So probably about a good seven or eight months ago, I decided for sure, yes, I'm definitely going to go for this. Kickstarter is going to be the best route for this. I'm already engaging the community. That's when I started to get in touch with, um, well, I, I reached out to my artist, the, the one I really wanted to work with and asked him about the project and got him on board, started getting the art done for it. And um, it's Tristan Rawson. He's a, a great artist and he's also great in the community. The other thing I really love about him is he shares so much in the community and I love that about him. So I knew that it was gonna be a little bit of free publicity and at the same time, getting the best look for the game too. So he would post things out there, get feedback. People would be saying, oh, I think you should do this. The shading is a little bit off here. I like this versus this other image that you had, that kind of thing. So there would be a little bit of community involvement. They would feel like they had some involvement. And also that's when you start hearing people saying, oh, this looks really cool. I want to hear more about this. And they and they see the progression of the game from you know early stages right to completion. They, they can kind of follow along and say like, I've known about this game for, for a long time now. I've been, I'm looking forward to this and I want to back it on day one. So that's the kind of momentum you want to build. So, so it just kind of built from there. But yeah, I would say like the last seven, eight months, I've kind of been building towards that. I was originally thinking I might launch it in the fall and I actually had a, a, an offer to have a demo table at Essen to be able to demo it. So that made me think, well, maybe I want to work, wait till after Essen because I have an opportunity to build that email list even further, get in front of other people. But then when COVID hit and everything started closing down and Essen officially, you know, decided to cancel, I was like, well, there, there's no chance for that. Um, and I had everything kind of lined up. So I thought, you know what, let me just put, all my eggs in one basket, to, so to speak, and uh, put my efforts all into this and uh, and launch it. And I came up with the date and I thought, okay, I can work towards that. I can get in place enough time to build the audience. I'll just go with that. Could you tell me how you made the prototypes which you sent out to reviewers and what are the plans for manufacturing the final game? Sure. So uh, yeah, the, all the prototypes, I found the, the best, most cost-effective way was to make them myself. So I ordered all the blocks. Um, I have an ink uh, mega ink tank printer. So printing wasn't an issue. Uh, so I printed all the cards off on cardstock and uh, I printed off sticker labels to, to put together the prototypes. And it was, it was more time 
uh, for me than anything else. I could have gone somewhere else and got them made, but I knew it was going to be very expensive. And I had like 20 made because I wanted a lot to be able to send out to reviewers, um, beta play testers and that type of thing. So I knew I needed to put together a lot. Uh, for the final version, I'm going to have the wooden blocks are actually going to be like um, heat press or uh, silk screen. There's a couple of different terms for that. But basically the images are going to be printed directly on there. Um, I intentionally did not want stickers or anything on that because I know they can peel, um, you know, and it's a lot of extra work to ask somebody to put all these stickers on and they might not get them even. It's not going to look as good, right? So I wanted to provide the best experience. It's going to be more costly to do it that way, but I think it's worth it in the end because it it is very much a game where you set it up and people will look at it and it has really great table presence. You see all these crates, you see all these boulders and other things that I don't want to spoil too much, um, but you see those on the board and they just look really cool. So um, the way it's gonna be manufactured is gonna, everything's gonna be printed right on there. Um, everything's gonna be in its own separate tuck box. So very much like a legacy style game or a campaign style game, you're gonna see one thing at a time. So you're gonna open up the first box, you're gonna get the crates, you're gonna get the 10 levels, you're gonna get the meeples and the gems, everything you need to get started. And it's only after you beat that first floor, you're going to open up the second tuck box. So I wanted to evoke a kind of a curiosity about what's coming next. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know what order. Um, and you just get a little hint at the last card where they're descending and what you're going to get. Um, so each tuck box is going to have those blocks. It's going to have 10 new cards to the new level plus reference cards and, and the advancement card. Uh, and then you're going to get through to the end. And then there's going to be a final. It's either going to be a box or an envelope, uh, which is going to have the final rules new cards about how you play that replayable solo adventure and all in uh, one nice big box all fitting in there. Yeah, uh, something that I want to talk about more and we've mentioned a couple of times already is the word community. And you've managed to build a community and it's something important, very important in making games uh, with your blogs and with your books. And I've heard you say in other interviews how uh, making a game is such a better process when you involve other people when you, and when you don't only keep it to yourself. Could you kind of expand on that? For sure, yeah. So I, I think community is uh, above all like one of the most important things. I, I say like to kind of you know paraphrase or steal another phrase, it takes a village to make a game. Um, even though you, know, you might be designing, you might be the, the solo designer, or even if you are co-designing with somebody else, it's not just going to be you that's contributing to this game. It's all the play testers. It's the other designers that you put this in front of. It's the publishers you speak to. It's, it's everybody. And there's such an importance in getting your game out in front of other people. Whether you are get, planning on pitching to publishers, letting them do that, or doing it yourself and self-publishing, either way, super important to get it in front of other people. Uh, many reasons for that. Uh, one is to make your game better. Obviously, you can't create in a silo. I mean, you may create this game and it might be fantastic to you, but you put it in front of other people and they're going to find issues with it. And you don't want people finding issues once it's released. Um, you know, obviously, they're going to still find minor things there, but you want to have it as solid as you can before that. Um, and it just it helps bring awareness. Um, I've had, had other people ask questions in other forums. You know how during these times can you know we get games in front of other publishers and, and do other things uh, to, to get attention on our game. So you know, regardless of what route you're going, you want people to be seeing your game. You can't hide it. You can't be worried about people stealing your idea. Every designer is worried about their, is, is more interested in their own ideas. Everybody, everybody loves their own ideas best. It's just a natural human thing, right? So they're gonna be working on that. Plus people are not gonna be stealing your idea because you, know, you don't wanna be known as the thief in the community. It's a very small, tight-knit community. You'll be found out People will not want to work with you, all those other things. You want to have a good reputation. So getting your game in front of other people 
allows other people to see it, allows other people to get interested in it, allows your game to get better. Uh, it can be through putting it out in contests, for example. Um, I mean, I've had games signed and published just by putting in a contest. It did not win the contest. It didn't even get her the first round. But the right publisher saw it in the first round, just happened to be the right match for it. They loved the game. We wound up signing and publishing the game. Like, that can happen. You can post something online, some images, some things you're working on. And a pub a publishers also frequent a lot of these groups as well. Some people are, are, are publishers in there. So they might see something and they might reach out to you. I've had a, another friend who, you know, made a couple posts about a game. And a very well-known publisher reached out to them and said, this looks really cool. I was actually working on a game with this concept a couple of years ago, but I shelved it. I'd love to see how you brought it to life. Now, it may not wind up being signed by that publisher, but there's some interest there. Maybe they'll get some insights onto some other challenges that that publisher faced. Maybe it will wind up being signed. You just never know. Uh, but just getting your, putting yourself out there is so important. And if you're running a Kickstarter, it's doubly important. You need to build that community. I definitely learned that from my first one and from working with other publishers on that. If you don't have enough people coming in on day one who are keen about your game, who have seen, then you're in trouble. Um, you can't have people coming to your campaign and everybody just seeing this for the first time and saying, I've never even heard about this. Like, where, where did this come from? Like, you need people to be interested. And when it launches on day one, to be saying, yes, I wanna be, I wanna be your first day backer. I wanna help get this funded. And then when they see it get funded, then they're like, oh, this game's funded. Everybody wants to back a winner. So it's that whole psychology. You want to fund quickly, get more and more people on, start opening up stretch goals, keep on collaborating with your community. And then when they're coming to you with suggestions, you know, you want to definitely understand what they want, but also manage their expectations because, you know, they might want, you know, metal coins and realistic things and all these things added, but it's going to add weight. It's going to add cost. You have to also manage those expectations, but build that community and say, this is a really fantastic idea. I, I can't add it now because it would require a lot of development, a lot of playtesting, and it would delay the production of this game and possibly the cost. But it's definitely something I would consider for a future expansion, that type of thing. So just having them uh, be acknowledged, uh, saying thank you so much for the, the idea, it's something I'm going to consider, and it, you know, it may be something that I can introduce later on. So it's just building that community and having people have their say and letting them know they've been listened to. Yeah, and I'm so happy that there's people like you out there who are sharing their own experience as they're going through the process of kickstarting a game and making games. How long ago did you start game design? Uh, I was about six, six and a half years ago. Uh, now, I, I was playing a party game. I was playing Cards Against Humanity a lot with my friends. And, uh, you know, they really loved it. And after, the first couple of times, it was a lot of fun. And then it just became, you know, same same game, uh, same thing, same cards win, and, and there wasn't a lot of creativity. I, I like a lot, a little bit of creativity. I like games a little more like Wise and Otherwise and Balderdash, where you can throw in your own ideas and try to trick people and get them to vote for you. What that, all those kinds of things, a little bit more. Um, so I set out to make a party game. I'm like, I think I can make something that you know would, um, you know, compete with this. That you know, you have a little more creativity, a little more fun, and you know, there's more replay value. And that's where my first game idea came from. And from there, it just was like snowballing. It's like, oh, I have an idea for this other one. I want to translate this card game that I used to play with my with my family, but used to take like three hours to play. Let's convert that to a dice game. And suddenly it became a 20 minute game you can go through really quickly. And then just more and more ideas came out from there. So yeah, I've been designing games over about six and a half years and really taking it serious over the last, I'd say four years or so. Um, and I'm, it's almost been two years ago that I left my day job and now I'm doing this full time. So I'm designing games, uh, teaching game design, writing books on game design and, and helping others. That's that's what I'm doing full-time for the last couple of years now. Yeah, and could you tell me about how you decided to start writing those books 
and what the reception was like for a book on game design. Sure. So the reception has been really great. I mean, it's it started selling right, really well right out of the gate and is really kept up that momentum. Like every, every month, more and more people are buying it. I'm getting comments from, from people who, uh, you know, write to me and say, thank you so much for this guide. You know, it's really inspired me and that kind of thing, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of um, how how it kind of came about, it was, you know, I I was, what as I was designing games and kind of learning about the process, I, I found that there was no one-stop shop to kind of find everything that I needed. Um, and I just, you know, learned a little bit from, you know, talking to people, a little bit from blogs, a little bit from a podcast here and there, but it was all very piecemeal. Um, even, even reading other books, it was just pieces. And there wasn't really kind of like a guide that kind of walks you through. So um, I decided I wanted to write the book that I wish I had four years before that, when I started out, before I knew what a playtest was, before I knew what, you know, all the things that I need to look for and think about the game as a product and all these other things. Um, so the, the book came together with that with that idea, that concept that I want to help people who are in that stage, in that early stage, um, so they can move forward a lot quicker than I did. Um, so I actually went through a program called Self-Publishing School, uh, which was a school that I learned how to write a book quickly, how to get it edited, and also how to market the book and get it out. So uh, their strong suggestion was Amazon. I mean, everybody's buying everything from Amazon, uh, books on Amazon. You can put an ebook on there and it's very low risk, low cost, uh, because as an ebook, um, you know, there's there's no minimum quantity, there's no physical thing being printed. Um, but then also adding the physical book and also adding an audiobook. And one of the other suggestions was um, as a good selling point was to include an audiobook for free. So with my first book, I, I tried that approach. So you buy the book, whether you buy the physical copy or download it, um, you can sign up and get on my emailing list, which is a great thing for me too, because I can continue to share more tips and tricks um, and share other things that I've learned with, with people. They can get the audiobooks so they can listen to on their own. They can have the ebook if they like it that way. They can get the physical copy um, at a very low cost and they can learn all this stuff. And then since then, I've, I've written a couple other books that are a little more specific in their topics as well. Um, but that's kind of how it all started. And you also teach classes in game design. How do you usually uh, teach? Do you focus more on individual projects or more principles of game design and tips and tricks, like you said? Yeah, so with my board game design course, I like I'd seen other courses and other things online. And the one thing that I felt that they lacked, and, and I even took some just to kind of learn more. I'm always all about learning more and, and seeing what else is out there. One of the things they lacked was was a real focus on what that individual is doing, what that game is that they're trying to do. I like they would have examples. Um, okay, let's all make this game together. And here's how you do the mechanics. And every game is going to turn it a little differently, of course. But that might not be interesting to somebody, especially somebody who already has an idea. A lot of people already have an idea. That's why they want to make the game. So they don't necessarily want to go back and make another version of tic-tac-toe or something else, right? Um, they want to get their game moving forward. Um, so I wanted to, to get right into that. And the other thing that's really lacking in a lot of these, these other resources that I found, whether it's a book, a blog, podcast, another course, there's no interaction with the instructor. You basically learn and you're off on your own. Yeah, you can learn a lot of stuff, and, and it, but it's up to you to apply it. And then what about if you have a question about your specific game? Because everybody has questions specific to their game. It's always, always the case. There's always something that's unique and different about their game or they have an experience other game and they, they just need to know about these other games out there so they can learn and say, oh, okay, I need to know about these other games because you know maybe this particular thing is done or they've done something a really great way and I can 
and I can make use of that and still be innovative in my game. So in my course, there's multiple aspects to it. There's the uh, video lessons and there's also written transcripts and audio. So you can listen to it or, or do it in any format that's good for you. You can take it anytime. You have lifetime access to it. So it's not just a course that's over and done. And I added in a couple extra things. So one is the community. So there's a community with other game designers and we post in there, we share their ideas. People can ask questions. They can post what they're working on to keep each other accountable and that type of thing. Um, ask questions and, and just keep advancing there. But I also do calls with all the members. So twice a month I do a call. So it's a group call. Anybody can come on. And depending on how many people we have on there, I might be talking about a specific topic, do a, like a little bit of a learning, um, but mostly it's there for Q&A. So anybody can jump on and they can say, this is the thing that I'm working on my game. This is a question I have. Um, how did you deal with this, this in this situation? And then it just snowballs into more and more questions and it, and it just goes deeper and deeper into these things. And we have some really fantastic conversations and then the designer can walk away with all that they've learned and then apply what they've learned do some more play testing, see how that all goes. And then they can come back on the next call and talk about how well that went um, and other things that they've experienced and new challenges that they're facing. So it's very, very specific to their game. They can ask those questions that are specific to their game, not just theory out there. I mean, the course talks a lot about theory, but also how you apply it to your own game. And then those conversations and the, the community allow you to get more specific on your own game. And what's the advice you usually give people to about pitching to publishers because you've been quite successful in uh, having games signed. Yeah, I think that the first approach is usually a cold contact. If you don't already know the publisher, especially if you're kind of new and starting out, it is a bit of a cold contact, which which can be a little bit hard and a little bit intimidating. Um, but it's, it's just usually a matter of first starting out saying, okay, I've got this game. I think it's at the stage where it's ready. Who's a good match for this? You don't want to just pitch to everybody. You don't want to pitch a party game to a war gaming uh, publisher, that kind of thing. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, it's it's doing that research, you know, using, you know, the Cardboard Edison Compendium, uh, doing further research to kind of narrow down and finding who the, tar the target publishers would be for this game. And then going out and finding out what their process is. So you don't want to just, you know, find an email and just fire it off to them. You want to learn what the process is because that, that's like a gatekeeping step. That's where they learn who can follow a process and who can't. And they'll read you out very quickly if you can't follow a process. If they say, you know, send us, uh, fill out this form with, you know, your sell sheet and an, and an overview video and a copy of the rules. And you just email them and say, hey, I got a game. You want to look at it? Kind of thing. Like you're, you're bypassing the approach. You're not going the right approach. So usually it's following whatever process they outline on their, on their website and also looking to see if they're currently accepting games. And that kind of gets you in the door. And sometimes you'll hear back and sometimes you won't. I mean, publishers have various degrees of how busy they are and how quickly they'll get back to you or if they will at all. Uh, some just have a policy. If it's not their match, they're not even going to bother to contact you back. So you have to be ready for that. But sometimes it's a matter of following up because sometimes a follow-up email is helpful as long as you're doing it in a constructive way, not saying, hey, why, why aren't you responding? But more asking, um, oh, just seeing if you had a chance uh, to look at my game. Uh, do you have any questions about the rules or any of that, anything that, like that? So that's kind of the starting point. And at that point, before you even pitch, you really want to have a sell sheet and a video ready. You want to have your rules in a, in a clear state so that they ask for that, they can get that, um, and a prototype ready, obviously, as well, in case they ask for that. So you never you know, want to just send them everything, uh, but just what they're asking for, and then be ready for when they have those follow-ups. So you're not like, oh, I need a week to put together a video and my rules and stuff. Like, like you want to be ready so that you can jump on it. They're interested now. You want to jump on that right now. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the first step. 
And whether you're just pitching to them just outright, or you're going to are planning going to a convention, you're trying to set up a meeting, basically, you know, they're going to be there, they're taking pitches. Um, it's going to be that first step. And then they can make that decision, you know, whether they're interested in meeting with you, and then you make that face-to-face -face connection. You can also sign up for speed dating events where you're going to meeting with a whole bunch of publishers. And quite often that won't lead to your game getting signed, but it does start a network and, it, and you can get business cards. You have direct contacts with these people. They know who you are. Uh, if they, you know, this isn't a match for them, but they like what you put together and you present yourself very professionally, they may say, you know, you're the type of person that I, you know, I want to know and I want to see other stuff. They may say, you know, this isn't a match for us, but you know, here's my card. Let me know if you have anything else in the works that might be a better match or in the future. Um, so having that connection is a lot easier than having to send, a, you know, an email to a generic info at uh, email address, that kind of thing. So it just kind of starts the conversation off. Um, I mean, you can also just go to a convention and, and, you know, just approach a booth and do a cold pitch. That's going to be a harder sell because they're going to be busy. They're selling games. They're doing other things. But, you know, if you can put together a really tight pitch, which you need anyways for your email or any other conversation um, that really succinctly talks about your game, why it's interesting, why it might be a good match for them, then that might lead to them saying, okay, you know, let's, you know talk to this person over here and we'll schedule a, a meeting, that kind of thing. And it is a little harder nowadays with, with COVID. Uh, being able to, you know, meet face-to-face. -face. But there is that opportunity to pitch and to even demo your game online. So getting your game on Tabletop Simulator, for example, that's usually the best approach if the publisher has that. Um, so once you meet with them and they're interested, then you can do a demo. You can do it over webcam. You can do it over Tabletop Simulator. They can actually play a few rounds, ask questions. I mean, that, those are all really great approaches to, uh, to doing that at, at any uh, kind of stage that you're at. Awesome. Well, it was great talking to you. And could you tell people where they can find out more? Uh, of course, the links are going to be in the description of this podcast as well. Absolutely. So um, if you're interested in game design and want to learn more, you can check out boardgamedesigncourse.com. Uh, that's where I have all my blogs. I, I blog weekly. There's an article on there every week. Um, I have my uh, books and course information on there as well. Um, and on my email list, I have over 1,400 designers. So very uh active in the community and always sharing more and more information, sharing other tips and that kind of thing. And if you want to check out uh, my game, it's Relics of Rajavahara, R-A-J-A-V-I-H-A-R-A. -A -A. Uh, but just check it out on uh, Kickstarter. You'll find it there. You can just type, uh, even type in Relics um, under Tabletop Games and you'll find probably find it uh, within the first few uh, games that pop up there as well. All right. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast. No problem, Ivan. Thanks uh, for having me on. It was a lot of fun.